Welcome to this episode of Stacks and Stories, the podcast of the Mississippi Library Commission. Join Katie and Natalie as they discuss why they prefer nonfiction to fiction, what their favorite nonfiction reads are, and more. So stay tuned. Hello there, and welcome to this episode of Stacks and Stories. My name is Katie Gill. I am the cataloging librarian, as well as one of the people who are usually behind the computer editing this podcast. And I am here with Natalie. Natalie, please introduce yourself. Hello. Hello, wonderful world of stacks and stories. Um, I am Natalie Dunaway, and I am the grant programs coordinator here at the Library Commission. And we're going to talk about some nonfiction today. We are. And Natalie, (laughs) this is your first proper podcast. This is my first proper podcast. Um, So I'm a little shaky legs, but that's okay. Don't be. You got this. I've got some notes. I've got some water over here. You know, um, I've got my emotional support pen that I wrote these notes with. So we're going to get into it. So let's get into it first by just asking, talking general questions. Mm -hmm. Both of us, so at MLC, we have a book club. And it is a very loosey-goosey book club. The rule of the book club is mostly read a book and talk about it at the book club. (laughs) And... Out in the book club, there are a handful of us who, while everybody else is reading like YA or Litfic or the hottest new airport read, there's a handful of us who will generally be reading something nonfiction. And Natalie and I are part of the handful. So what draws you to nonfiction, Natalie? Oh my goodness. Well, what doesn't draw me to it? I think like, honestly, I think, and and I do like fiction as well. I mean, I I do read fiction books um, on occasion, but for me, like nonfiction feels a little bit more intentional. I think, I think I go into a nonfiction read with like the plan to learn something or like, you know, I already have an interest in the thing, you know, that, that the book's about. Um, with fiction, I really have to be in the mood to be able to concentrate and be in the moment and let the story take me away. And sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't, but nonfiction is more interest-driven for me, so I think that's why I gravitate towards it more, if that makes sense. Um, what about you, Katie? So, yeah, I'm kind of the same way. With nonfiction, mm-hmm. I will pick it up because there's an interest that I'm in and or there's something mm-hmm. that, oh, I want to learn more about this. I'm going to do it. And it's different than a way with fiction for me mm-hmm. because like I'm a lot more willing to forgive flaws in nonfiction mm-hmm. books like there are because I'm still learning mm-hmm. and I'm still picking up new information. Whereas with fiction books, there are definitely some things where if it's a fiction book and it does this, it's like, cool, I'm putting it down. We're not going to read the rest of this. Or it can be a little bit hard to gauge the mood of a fiction book picking it up. Where it's like, oh, is this, this says that it's a tearjerker, but is it going to be like a happy tearjerker or a like Sarah McLaughlin with the dogs and the SPCA commercials tearjerker where I spend the whole time feeling miserable. Right. But like with with nonfiction, I feel like it's easier to just sort of, guess the mood going in because if you're picking up a book about a horrible disaster Chernobyl yeah if you're picking up a Chernobyl (laughs) book you're gonna be feeling kind of miserable by the end of it you've got to really be in the mood to read about Chernobyl you know (laughs) 
But like, if you're picking up a book about like this is an inspiring Olympic athlete mm-hmm. who won his Olympic race despite growing up in like a village that didn't have paved roads, then you'll feel good at the end of it. Sure, it's sure. Heartwarming and inspiring. Absolutely, yeah. I think. Um, no, I mean, I totally agree with all of that. Absolutely. And disclaimer, um, for the hardcore fiction advocates, lovers listening to this, I'm going to say some things about nonfiction. Hot takes, hot that, takes. Uh, that I get out of nonfiction. I am not saying that you cannot get the same thing out of your fiction reads. I'm just saying what I get out of nonfiction. Um, but, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think I think with nonfiction I kind of enjoy the uh, – the research element of it too you know if I'm reading a nonfiction book about something you know I can also get on the internet and learn more about that thing or learn more context about that topic that I'm reading about and I really like that um, a lot and like I said it feels more intentional for me and it feels like I don't know it gives me a feeling of like actively participating in the world around me right Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that's why I gravitate towards it more um, it makes me feel kind of just like I'm participating in the zeitgeist or I'm participating, you know, in society and, you know, learning things that are practically applicable, you know, in some cases. Um, and like I said, I mean, I, it, there's plenty of fiction books out there that I've really enjoyed and that I've really loved. It's just I tend to lose steam when it comes to fiction And I think it's having to sort of create an image of something or create this fictional world in my head, you know, just based on what's on the page. I think I struggle with that a little bit. Mm -hmm. For me, that's what movies are for, you know. Right. I I like to have the visuals made for me and the setting made for me and the sounds made for me. Um, So for reading, I like to go towards something that's, you know, immediately practical and applicable. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. And I know that with me, I have, I don't know if I've ever said this on the podcast, but I have definitely said it in like outside podcast conversations. I'm a big hater on unfinished series. Like I do not, (laughs) if you're, if you want me to read a long series, it has to be either one of those books where you can read each book standalone, like the Babysitter's Club where nothing ties into each Mm -hmm. other or the series has to be completely finished. And that is definitely something that I enjoy about nonfiction, where you have a scope. You have a start point and an end point. Right. And usually in, like, the first five pages of the introduction, you're going to get that start point and that end point. Like, mm-hmm. if you have a book on the entire history of the United States, then it's going to be, like, ten bajillion pages long sure. and no one's going to want to read it. So their book will start off with, hi, we're just going to be talking about, like, these two presidents and these two years. These are our guidelines. Mm-hmm. And right. I love guidelines. Yes, I, uh, I work in grants, so guidelines right. are excellent. <laughs> and I think, like, with nonfiction for me, too, it's like a, a sense of, like, accomplishment for me. Like, I've learned something. I've completed this thing. You know, some people come home after work. Um, and they cook a meal, and that gives them a sense of, you know, accomplishment at the end of their day, or they'll go run a few miles or whatever. For me, a nonfiction read is a way for me to get that, you know, that check mark, that sense of uh, completing something, that sense of reward. I really enjoy it. Katie, I have a question. I have an answer. I see that you have a beautiful book about cats <laughs> with you. I do. So <laughs> we, we, when we were talking about getting the podcast set up, both of 
of us like to read bummers. <laughs> yes, so. we do. <laughs> I love a bummer. I love a bummer. I love a bummer book. So I had to pick one nonfiction book that wasn't a bummer. Okay, great. And we're going to start off with the not bummer because I read a lot of nonfiction when I was a kid as well. Mm -hmm. And one of the nonfiction books that I read, it was one of these, some of these books by DK Publishing. And they did a... I first got into them because it had these god-awful... I say god-awful now. It was great when I was like five right vhs's with eyewitness and the opening is like the best computer animation 2000s money could buy which means right. that it's kind of jank and it's up on youtube i'm obsessed with it oh, i love so, it yeah <laughs> but i so i read a lot of uh, DK, dk publishing also did the eyewitness series and then they have lots of Big reference books. The one that I have with me is called The Encyclopedia of the Cat, edited by Bruce Fogel. And what I really like about this book is that (gasps) they have a lot of pictures. Oh, I love pictures. All of these books. (laughs) Oh, no, same. (laughs) All of these books have so many pictures of cats. So many pictures of cats. Hey, uh, Katie, I have a question. Yeah. Do you have a cat? I have a cat. <laughs> I was just, no, no. I had I had a whole thing planned for this. So, Levy, because you also have a cat. I also have a cat. Shout out Miss Gravy. Yes. She's so, probably taking a little nap right now. Yeah, both of my cats are also probably taking a little nap right now. <laughs> but one of my cats, Cornelius, we don't know what he is. He's a Hides 57. He was picked up from the pound. Right. And by the pound, I mean like a friend's house. <laughs> <laughs> but my other cat, Monty, we're pretty sure that he's a Manx cat mm-hmm. because he has, he doesn't have a tail. And Manx cats are like round and stout and potato shaped. Sure. And Monty's just a potato. So. I like it. I yeah, love it. So I love I, Monty. Oh, he's so, he's so sweet. He's precious. He's a baby. So I put, I looked up Manx, and I want to read this little fun little part about the Manx, and it's very different tales. Cats may be rumpies with no tail, just a dimple at the base of the spine, stumpies with short tails, and tailies with almost natural, although perhaps kinked, tails. Stumpies and tailies make excellent pets with retiring but friendly personalities, but show cats are all rumpies. <laughs> okay, first off, I hope those are the official scientific I think, terms. I think those are the official scientific <laughs> okay, terms. Okay, I love that. And for our listeners, you know, of course you can't see us, Katie is loving this book. I have never seen my coworker smile so big. That's pretty awesome. That's awesome. No, for sure. Monty's Monty's a rumpy. <laughs> Monty is a rumpy. Oh, sweet bee. So, I have a question. DK yes. Publishing, I think they showed up a lot at our, uh, what, what were they, like book fairs, book sales yeah, and stuff yeah. in school? Yeah, they do. I checked to see Scholastic. what. Yeah, because I, I did check to see what sort of pub, books that they had published when looking at our library catalog because I wanted to grab one of these because mm-hmm. I went on a whole YouTube spiral of like, oh, what was that dang, those books that I read when I was younger that had all the pictures. They were the reference books. DK Publishing. But they do have some books that are targeted towards a younger audience. Sure, sure. And, like, we have one in the library about, like, Greek myths and legends and oh, then also nice. one about, like, math. But then they also have a lot more general knowledge mm-hmm. books targeted towards an older audience where it's just like the science book, a basic rundown yes. of science. Or, yes. Yeah. Actually, you're making me think of something. So I have a cousin, and she is a uh, microbiologist. Mm-hmm. She teaches at a college. 
and um, actually, yeah, DK Publishing. I bought her for Christmas. I bought her this beautiful, beautiful book published by them, and it's called like Micro Life. And the cover of it is kind of like a purple, kind of lavender color, with um, I believe it's an ant um, carrying or interacting with like a, a little bead of water on Ooh. a leaf. Anyways, the book is absolutely beautiful the photos and the close-up images they have of all these like creatures and species of bugs and insects and germs and all this stuff I mean it's absolutely gorgeous she loved it she keeps it in her office but anywho uh non-fiction yeah. <laughs> microbiology <laughs> so does Miss Gravy have a specific breed or is she just a Miss Gravy is a good up? old tabby cat adopted from the Tupelo Pet Smart. She <laughs> is as, you know, down to earth as can get. I'm going to look at the index to see if they have anything about tabby specifically. Yes. Uh, no, they do not. It goes from Tabor Roger to taillessness. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, Cordelius is the same way. He's a tabby. Yeah. Oh, cats. They're special little animals. They're so sweet. Well, let's see. What else you got, Katie? Well, what do you have? Oh, you, what do I, I have? Tell, I brought, I, I already talked about one of my books. You're going to talk about one of yours now. Let's <laughs> see. You know, I, I, yeah, I, when preparation for this podcast, I was like, Natalie, what nonfiction books have you read that you really enjoyed? And I kind of fell back. I started thinking about a lot of memoirs I've read over the years. And I wanted to give a shout out. I wanted to talk about, and of course, it was a bestseller. I think everybody's heard of this book. It's called Educated by oh, Tara yeah. Westover. I believe I read it in 2018, and I may have read it twice, but I absolutely love that book. I love that story. I love everything about it. It's essentially, um, not to give too much away, but um, it's a memoir about Tara Westover's life. She was born in Idaho to a hyper, hyper, hyper survivalist Mormon family, Never received a formal education. I, I believe her, if I can remember correctly, her father and mother were kind of, you know, severe conspiracy theorists. You know, education rots your brain, blah, 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 blah. Um, and like I said, hyper-survivalist. I believe there's a part in the book when she's a kid and she injures herself. Maybe she rolls down a hill or something. But um, I remember reading it, and, it's, and she injured herself really badly. Um, I think a bone may have even been exposed. And it was a situation where, like, Oof, if you're not going to call an ambulance, I mean, you got to get to an ER ASAP. Well, her parents didn't take her to the doctor. Instead, her mother applied some of her herbs and tinctures that she had stewed and, you know, um, made and kept in the house to, you know, address whatever the issue is. That's just an example to give you an idea of uh, the context of the lifestyle she came from. And then finally... Um, I believe this story has it where she uh, was put in connection to with like a local teacher or professor and she ended up going to Brigham Young getting her education there and she actually ended up becoming a Cambridge scholar Ooh. and um, maybe a Harvard visiting professor and may maybe that's where she is today not quite sure need to double check that but anyways she's become an incredibly successful um, author as well obviously and and I really enjoyed that story because I mean it shows you that life at its base genuinely is a bit of luck and then a series of choices and going back to just nonfiction in general 
I feel like, you know, there's a lot to learn from that as well. And again, it's immediately applicable in um, daily life, you know, thinking that way in terms of, you know, life is, like I said, a little bit of luck and then a series of choices. But um, Charlie mentioned before we started the podcast, you know, one great thing about fiction is that it can teach you empathy and to relate. And that's, of course, um, inarguably true, but I think nonfiction can do the exact same. And, um, and it's real. <laughs> Sorry, Charlie. I'm looking at Charlie. Uh, you can edit that out. That was my little hot take. That was my jab at fiction. You're allowed, you're allowed to have hot takes. We can, no, we can keep no, hot no. takes at the podcast. It's okay. I really don't have a problem with fiction. Um, like I said, there's plenty of fiction reads that I've loved. Um, but I do. I just find myself gravitating more towards nonfiction, like I said. Barack Obama's um, A Promised Land. I read that in 2020 maybe 2021 that is someone who can write like that's someone obviously who can write. obviously he can because like he was president and all that yeah but, right <laughs> but um, even without that i'm certain that there are some presidents who have written terrible memoirs and his yeah. is not one of them <laughs> right um i really enjoyed that um i really i, I read the audiobook um and it was such an interesting you know, no matter where you fall on the aisle, it was such an interesting look at, good Lord, uh, just the intricacies of, like, political campaigns and, like, being in office and all these things. And it's, like, perspectives that you would never consider before, you know, what's going on behind the scenes, like, in political offices. And I can tell you one thing after listening to that is I don't know why anybody <laughs> – would want to be president of a country <laughs> that is a job i do not want it is so complicated yeah. and um i there's a reason they go in and then they come out looking you know a few decades right older. <laughs> those those before and after pictures of obama right. where it's like here he is getting inaugurated young and sprightly and full of fip and pep and then it's like here's him eight years later and he looks like the life has been wrung out of him <laughs> right right so um it, it was it was a really good read. I really, really enjoyed it. But, um, yeah, no. Um, like I said, nonfiction, it, it's great to me because I can expand upon a topic. Um, like I said, that I'm interested in. Oh, I read this book. I want to learn more about this thing. And because it's real, Charlie, looking at you, um, <laughs> there's more information to be learned. I'm, I'm still teasing. <laughs> So kind of piggybacking about the point that you made about like learning empathy from nonfiction, sure. I think that that's one of the reasons why I really like disaster books. Really? I love disaster books. I love people having like people having bad times on boats. Just really having a horrible right. time. <laughs> right. Well, but, but like with this, you have people that are having a horrible time, but mm -hmm. especially if there's multiple people having a horrible time, like they'll come together and the humanity sure. will start to shine through, even through absolutely. their absolutely terrible circumstances. Yeah. Like one of the books that I have written down, uh, In the Heart of the Sea, The Tragedy of the Whale Ship Essex by Nathaniel Philbrick. Oh my goodness. Is... It's about people having bad times on boats. Um, <laughs> uh, can I guess? Does a does a boat sink? A boat does sink. <laughs> uh, a whale hits a boat. Oh no! And then the boat sinks, but people get on the on their little lifeboats, sure. which again they don't have much provisions on the lifeboats because this boat rapidly started to sink. 
Right. And things go from bad to worse for the men <laughs> of the whale ship Essex. Oh, no. But at its core, you still have like people thinking about their fellow crewmates and thinking about how to help best survive the situation and what to do to keep others' humanity in mind. And even in this disaster situation, people are still being people. Like people are still Absolutely. looking out for each other. There's the captain stuck in a lifeboat with his like his nephew and things mm. are not good and they right. have to draw straws for who mm. is going to be to, eaten yeah <laughs> yeah for the long short they have to cast lots for because they have run out of food and they need more food <laughs> and the nephew gets the short straw and so you have this moment where the captain's like, buddy, if, if you want me to swap with you, I will 100% swap with you. Right. You are my nephew. I care about you. Your mom will kill me if I come home and you're dead. Yeah, and you've been eaten. <laughs> and you've been eaten. Yeah, so and what makes that so much more impressive to me, Katie, is that that is a direct reflection of actual humans being human. Right. Of course you can see humanity through fictional stories. You can, but again, hot take. Isn't it so much better? when it's real right i definitely agree with you on that with 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 it being real you have like these examples of like humanity and empathy and in some cases just selflessness going through people mm -hmm. doing that and that's one of the reasons why i like disaster books because you have those like it's the sort of look to the helpers thing. Like even when you're on the Titanic, you've got the people who are making sure that others get on the lifeboats right. or when you've got the plane crash in the Andes, you've got the people who are mm -hmm. like, Oh, I'm, you are a bit more off than me have my rations and things like that. And it's a weird reason that people don't think of what I say. Yeah, I read a lot of disaster books where things <laughs> right. end up poorly for everybody. Yeah, you can but see the good definitely, come out people. Right, it's yeah. definitely one of the reasons. Yeah, and I imagine that that in an, in an odd way is, you know, um, fulfilling or feels good or, like I said, in an odd way reassuring. It's, it's an opportunity to see how good people can be at the root of time. Right. Another book I have written down, speaking of disasters, this isn't really disaster so much. Well, Disa I guess if you lived through it, it was a disaster. Disaster adjacent. <laughs> but Persepolis. That's definitely by, disaster Yeah, adjacent. yeah. I would say the Islamic Revolution in Iran was probably a disaster for a lot of people. Especially if you're like a 14-year-old girl. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Persepolis by uh, Marjane Satrapi. Citra um, you know, she grew up in Tehran, uh, Iran. And she studied at a French school, and the graphic novel just follows her um, from her girlhood to when she finally goes to school. I believe it's in Vienna for uh, the arts or art design, if I can remember correctly. And in the backdrop of all this, you have just this enormous like political and cultural war brewing, 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 and then um, you know we get a glimpse at you know what Iran is like after the Islamic Revolution and the exile of the Shah. And uh, finally, when she returns um, to see her family as an adult, we see what that looked like um, through her girlhood and then, you know, in her adulthood. And it's really, really interesting to see, you know, all these things happening and how it affects her as a girl and, you know, as a young woman uh, and her family. She comes from a relatively 
you know, I suppose for the time, progressive, liberal, educated family. She went to a French school, I believe, um, in Iran. And this book depicts that, and, and it's really, really interesting. And, you know, talk about developing some empathy. Right. I mean, it. I love it because, and I, and I believe maybe Anthony Bourdain said this, but um, people are not their governments, and that's a wonderful, wonderful um, book that shows that. It, it's, it's really... Um, it's one of my favorites, if I'm honest. Um, it's a fantastic read, so recommend it. It really is a good Persepolis. read. And it's definitely <laughs> one of those things where it's like with the memoirs are very good for this, and even mm-hmm. just some nonfiction as well, where you have this giant change of events, this giant thing going on, mm-hmm. and then you look at how the little people are doing. Exactly. Because exactly. you could... You could you can't throw a rock at a bookstore without hitting a biography of Churchill. Right. But every now and then, if you get one of those letters, those books where it's like a collection of letters from soldiers on mm-hmm. the home front, right. writing back in World War II, or like a collection of like letters from Vietnam War soldiers or something like that. Or here mm-hmm. are journal entries from teenagers during the Cultural Revolution. Right. Like you get that sense of what for lack of a better term, what randos were doing during that yeah, time. Yeah, absolutely. And um, again, you develop that context for these huge, big issues that we see going on in the world, um, and you develop context for it, and you see how actual real people every day are dealing with it. And like I said, woof, want to talk about developing some empathy. Right. Or some sympathy, rather. Um, no, absolutely, I love it. I love nonfiction. It's great for that. <laughs> so what else are you reading, Katie? Well, I have my last book that I came up with a recommendation that I wrote down, but obviously, like, we could talk for 20 billion more books mm-hmm. if we want. But this one, it doesn't – it technically involves people, but kind of doesn't involve people. Ooh. Um, it involves cadavers. Oh, nice. <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> well, and I picked this one. So this is uh, Stiff, The Curious Life of Human Cadavers by Mary Roach. And I picked this one because Mary Roach is one of those authors who can write about a morbid topic or Mm -hmm. an unconventional topic, but infuse humor in the work. Like, there are authors like Mary Roach and Sarah Vowell who take a humorous slant to something that might not be humorous. Sure. Like, one of... I would, one of the founding nonfiction books for me that got my interest in nonfiction was Assassination Vacation by Sarah Vowell, which yeah. is part an in-depth examination of the presidential assassinations and part mm-hmm. Sarah Vowell doing a travelogue as she goes to visit various sites yeah. tied to these assassinations and talking about like, well, the place where the assassins hit out after shooting Abraham Lincoln is now a shell station. And I bought <laughs> a Coke there. Oh, we live in a society. We do live in a society. <laughs> well, look, I mean, you know, this is all subjective, of course. But, I, you know, I mean, we're here. We're mm-hmm. on the planet. <laughs> right. We're stuck here until we're not. Right. You know, make a joke. Right. Talk about Abraham Lincoln's assassination location being turned into a shell right. station. <laughs> and like with, with Stiff, it's about a morbid topic. It's about cadavers. Mm-hmm. But Mary Roach top tackles it with empathy and with bringing sure. a little bit of humor into the situation. So it's not just like... 200 pages of bummers. Right, right. And so with Stiff, each chapter talks about a different way that cadavers were used throughout history, including up to today, Mm -hmm. where you have, like, people donating their body to science or body farms or cadavers being used in 
like army tests or things like that because if you want to test a helmet that will protect soldiers from shrapnel after a certain amount of time the best way to do it is like a practical test and you're not going to do that on living people because if it doesn't work congratulations you just killed your test subject but if someone donates their body to science or donates their body to purposes like this then you have something that you could use and in death your body could help others in life yeah absolutely and it goes through a whole whole history of cadaver use starting with like body snatching in the 1800s the burke and hare sort of thing which involves a lot of dunking on them which is great up to modern day cadaver use of like medical studies and army tests and things like that and uh, Mary Roach just treats the subject with humor and with empathy. There's, it doesn't get into shock value for the sake of shock value because mm-hmm. you could definitely think like, oh, I'm 14 and I'm edgy and I'm watching Fight Club for the first time, so I'm going to make edginess my personality. <laughs> right, right, right. And it's not a book like that. Right. Like, yeah. She's very respectful when talking about the bodies in the book because like those bodies were once people like Mm -hmm. we still need to treat them with respect and give them respect in death sure but it is treating it with respect but also with the humorous look because if something if something kind of ridiculous happens because something kind of ridiculous will happen in situations like this when you're talking about like a the body farm is or like leaving bodies in the woods to test decomposition rate is kind right. of ridiculous just in concept. Mm-hmm. She'll dig into that ridiculousness, but treat it with empathy and grace. Yeah, which no, that's awesome. I really like because I don't like it when books talk about subjects in a way that's tacky. Right. <laughs> don't be tacky when you're talking about like don't atrocities be, of dead people. And don't be tacky. Don't be tacky. Let's not be tacky. I'll be the subheading for this podcast. Just don't be tacky. Don't be tacky. Um, so, well, here's my next question, Katie. Go for it. What's on your, what's next on nonfiction for Katie Gill? I'm reading a disaster book. Nice. I'm reading a disaster. What disaster? It's about the Donner Party. Oh. <laughs> yep. The Donner Party. That is. So that's, it's an, it is a. Is that the one in South America? It, no, it's in North America. So the Donner Party is the, it's Oregon Trail, 1860. 70s? No, earlier than that, because Polk was present. 1850s, 40s and 50s. It's oh, that's people, right. Yeah, people yeah, going yeah, yeah. out. We're going to go on the trail from Illinois to California. But then the Donner Party, which is a group of like 30 or so people, they get snowed in. They run out of supplies. Things go from bad to worse. Yeah. All right. So the book that I'm reading right now is titled The Indifferent Stars Above, The Harrowing Saga of a Donner Party Bride by Daniel James Brown. And I really like it. I'm only like half of the way through it, but Mm -hmm. it focuses on one particular member of the Donner Party, a young girl in her early 20s named Sarah. Mm -hmm. And it puts her life in context where it's like, okay, this is what people were doing at the time. This is what Sarah's life was like. Sarah might have been when she was on the wagon trail going towards California. She would probably be doing this. She got married right before the wagon train left. That's normal for the time. Mm -hmm. And it puts the tragedy of the Donner Party into greater context. Sure. And I'm halfway through it, and bad things haven't happened yet, but the book is very upfront telling you, like, 
Yeah, they left way too late. They're what? also taking a route that someone said was a shortcut, but the person who said it was a shortcut had never actually taken the shortcut before. Yeah. So you, the book is doing a good job being upfront about like, yo, things aren't going to go good for this poor family. Oh man, I bet that is. Um, I bet that's that was pretty tough. I would, yeah. <laughs> I would imagine. Yeah. But I'm excited to. I'm excited to hear later about the Donner Party and um, the disaster that that was i'm reading right now everybody hold on to your seats this is really exciting i'm reading a concise history of u.s foreign policy <laughs> <laughs> i feel like when i say things like this at our book club people just roll their eyes and they're like uh who I, does this woman think she is I was, okay i was the one who brought up like a 600 page book about chernobyl in january <laughs> we're on the same wavelength with this okay in my defense though like i have a degree in like <laughs> East Asian studies that dealt with like geopolitics and stuff. My point in saying that is that it is a legitimate interest of mine. It's not just me like being obnoxious. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm reading that right now. Um, and I'm also reading a book by Sam Harris. He's um, a neuroscientist and philosopher and it's about um, how science can actually, in, in his view, um, it's better if science uh, influence our uh, moral decisions what we consider moral and what is moral the book is called the moral landscape by sam harris and it's like i said essentially about how science um science can be a wonderful tool to influence human values essentially so um that's interesting a little bit of a snoozer but um i'm enjoying it i mean it is that's definitely one thing that like whenever people think about nonfiction, like they'll think like, oh yeah, this might be a bit of a snoozer. Are you seriously reading this Mm -hmm. 600 page book about X, Y, Z? But it's like, I, yes, I am seriously reading this 600 page X, Y, Z because I want to learn more about that. Yeah, exactly. And also like literally a Game of Thrones book is 600 pages long. Right, exactly. And has probably has a way more made up way more made up names that I need to keep track of. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And see, and that's what I was going back with with my fiction and stuff. You know, I think I'd really struggle. I mean, of course, I appreciate Game of Thrones, you know, but I think, you know, reading those books, I'd really struggle to paint, you know, in my mind, you know, the world of Westeros. But thank goodness, it's a series on HBO. So I don't have to do that. <laughs> You know, in nonfiction, I'm already in the world, right? right? Like, no, I didn't grow up during the Islamic Revolution in Iran, but it's a true thing that happened, and I can go and learn more about it and reference it and get a picture, get an idea of what that looked like instead of relying on the language in a fiction book to do that. And I will say one really good thing that I enjoy about nonfiction books is whenever you get a big, long book about a historical event and there are pictures in the middle. Yes. Yes. Because <laughs> that helps that helps me, my face blind self so much because when I was reading – I, we I talk, we vaguely talked about this, but I recently read Midnight in Chernobyl by Adam Higginbotham, which is a 600-page book about Chernobyl that involves 600 Russian and Ukrainian scientists, all with different nice. Russian and Ukrainian names. Yeah. But there are pictures. There yes. are pictures in the middle of the book that I can flip to so I have in my head, like, okay, this is this person who does this job. And with your 
with your Game of Thrones, it's Ned Stark is Sean Bean in my head because right. there aren't pictures in the book. Thank you, HBO. <laughs> Thank you, HBO. <laughs> well, and that's the thing about uh, fiction, too, uh, just to go with that a little bit. I, I kind of appreciate it when when something's made into TV or movie because then I can go watch that thing. And then I'm actually, because I have a visual reference, right. because that's made for me, I can go back and I can read something like The Hobbit or Game of Thrones, and I have an easier time reading heavy fiction like that because all that work is already done for me. You'll have an actor to put in like, oh, there are, here, here are 12 dwarves who all have identical names, but this one's Richard Armitage. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. Shout out to Richard Armitage. Shout out um. to Richard Armitage. <laughs> Please listen to our podcast. Yeah. Retweet um, us on Twitter if you do. I got one more if we have time. We 100% I was, have time to I go for it. I was going down the memoir route, and I was thinking about it, but then, you know, I, I remembered, I read, um, I think it was also back in 2018, um, 1776 by David McCullough. Ooh. Ooh yeah. is right. Um, I read it. I finished it. Um, it racked my brain. But it was it was great, you know. I mean, of course, as like America as it is now, um, you know, we don't have as long or rich of a history as say, you know, England does or Japan. You know, these these old 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 um, countries. But I, reading that, first off, David McCullough is excellent um, in his writing. Um, you can read it, and you can tell he has a really. Tr- I mean, he has a true passion for it. He also wrote John Adams. Which HBO, HBO. also yep. <laughs> made an adaptation You're on. Reading it, picturing Paul Giamatti <laughs> in your head. I yes, picture Paul Giamatti as John Adams and Laura Linney as um, oh Abigail. What's his Abigail's the wife. Yeah, Abigail Adams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anywho, that one's a good one too. Read that. Uh, but yeah, it, it just gave me a really good um, understanding and and you know a different perspective of how you know we were founded, how we came to be, essentially. It was a good read. Recommended if you're interested in, in American history during that period. Yeah, but and for all people talk about, like, oh, there are big, buzzy fiction authors who always top the charts, always do this, do X, Y, Z. There are definitely also big, buzzy nonfiction authors. Absolutely. And I would consider David McCullough to be, like, uh, one of the top ones. Uh, a huge one. A huge one. Huge one. So, who else a big, buzzy nonfiction author? Um, I can't think of any. Eric, Eric, I would put Eric Larson up there. I think he's the, okay. that's the name, the Devil in the White City guy. Okay, which I've not he, read that. That one's very good, but... As as the cataloging librarian, I get a look in at a lot of books that come in, mm-hmm. and he's one that has always that's put out regular books that always seem to be relatively well regarded, right? And okay. checked out and read by a lot of dads. I yeah. say complimentary. <laughs> it's, a, it's a dad book. It's a dad book. So, Katie, if I want to get into um, disaster nonfiction, <laughs> can you give me some recommendations? Maybe I'm kind of getting away from like purely historical maybe i'm getting away from memoirs you know and that's fine if it's in the context of a disaster story but maybe i want to maybe i want to get my disaster on what what do you um what do you recommend oh gosh well i will fully admit that my particular uh flavor of disasters are people in ships having a very bad time okay i love a boat disaster 
Um, so, hey, Katie, have yeah. you ever heard of the Titanic? <laughs> I was I was a Titanic kid when I was. Younger. I was too. I was, I a, was huge a huge Titanic, Titanic kid. kid. Do you, listen to this. Let me tell you how weird this is. Go for it. Guess who drew pictures of the Titanic sinking constantly you? as a kid? Yeah, me. <laughs> I think it's because I obviously didn't understand the context of what was going on. I just loved Leonardo DiCaprio, so I wanted to draw whatever was from this movie. Anyways, weird fact about Natalie. <laughs> I mean, I don't blame you. I also was, I was a Titanic kid, and I was also a, uh, a, a Dear America kid, which these are, they're fictional. Ooh, I don't know about that. They're fictional, but it's fiction, it's historical fiction, where it's like, I'm a 12-year-old girl, and I lived through the Civil War. Or like, I'm a 12-year-old girl, and I lived through Pearl Harbor. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's... Which explains a lot Interesting. about me. <laughs> <laughs> and I live through Pearl Harbor. Yeah. But oh, my goodness. If you want a good disaster boat mm-hmm. book, and yeah. I have this book. I can lend it to you. It's pre- It's relatively new. It came out in, like, 2020. It's called Madhouse at the End of the Earth, The Belgica's Journey into the Dark Antarctic Night by Julian oh. Sancton. It's a disaster book, but it's... It's a light disaster because only only a couple people die. <laughs> it's disaster light. It's disaster light. Only gotcha. a couple people die instead of the whole exploration. But it's about a so it's like the 1880s, 1890s. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to learn about Antarctica. Everybody wants to go down to Antarctica. We want to put our flag on Antarctica. We want to claim this mm-hmm. stake of land for our country. France is getting really into it. Britain's getting really into it. We're starting to compete. we got to get down there. And here comes Belgium, (laughs) who really (laughs) wants to get in on the Antarctica craze, but doesn't have much in the way of money, doesn't have much in the way of explorers. They finance the Belgica, which is a a ship that got outfitted to be an Antarctic ship. They pick together a ragtag crew. They go down to Antarctica, and the ship freezes in the ice, and they have to overwinter. And it's very much like people have Mm -hmm. kind of jokingly kind of seriously described it as like a frat house on ice because Mm -hmm. it's a bunch of these men in their 20s and 30s, only two of which really know what they're doing. Right, right. Uh, The captain is not doing well. I would suspect there's also heavy drinking involved. uh, Well, (laughs) no, no, it gets gets even worse because the captain's not doing well. And there's a theory about why the captain isn't doing well that, spoiler alert, I will reveal at the end, of, it's revealed at the end of the book, but I'm going to spoil it here. Okay. Spoiler the theory alert. is that, one of the theories posited at the end is that, so they've got like the ship's doctor down there taking a whole bunch of pictures of Antarctica. Look mm-hmm. at all this. We're taking all these cool pictures. The dark room is right next to the captain's cabinet, cabin. So there's a theory that the chemicals using to develop the pictures were kind of bleeding into the mm-hmm. captain's cabin. <gasps> so he's part of the reason why he's not doing so hot, aside from just depression, is just a little bit of accidental poisoning. Oh, nice. Which I think nonfiction books that have a little bit of a mystery are also my jam. Yeah. But you've got these poor guys just trying to figure out how to survive in Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Only... We have a couple, two guys who were polar veterans, and so they know what they're doing, and they're becoming best friends and exploring, and everything's a bit of a hot mess, but right. in a way that's very fun and entertaining to read. And I have awesome. the hard copy of it, and we'll happily lend it to you if you wish. Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. 
Um, po- the poor captain getting poisoned. That right. sounds like some 19th century mischief. Yeah, he's already like slightly depressed as is. And then you add well, in a little bit yeah. of possible poisoning and You're things get worse. Doing, well, I guess you wouldn't call it the space race, the ocean race right. to Antarctica. It's cold. You're stuck on a boat. Probably didn't smell very good. Oh, and yeah, you're getting yeah. poisoned. Mm-hmm. Depression all day. Yep. Katie, I want I want your opinion. Hit me up. So I'm not really one for the like true crime drama. That's yeah. an area of nonfiction I don't really gravitate it de- to. It depends on it for me. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Well, I f- I feel that it gets a little bit into the don't be tacky sort of thing because yeah, yeah. There are definitely some books I've read a couple of true crimes, and there are definitely some where. If you approach it with grace and mm-hmm. with empathy towards the victims, mm-hmm. that I am definitely more on board. If it's sure. like, here's Charles Manson, look at how depraved he is, woo, murder, then it's like, no, yeah, yeah. that just seems schlocky. You're trying to grab some yeah. coin out of that. I, yeah. will, I will also briefly take this to plug a true crime book that I really enjoyed, Ooh, which was mentioned it? on a previous podcast, uh, The Five by Hallie Rubenfeld. It's a book about Jack the Ripper, but it focuses exclusively on his victims. Okay. On the canonical five. And so Hallie Rubenfeld focuses on the history of these women, the lives of these women, mm-hmm. and gives them agency in a way that a lot of Jack the Ripper studies have not done before. She focuses right. solely on the victims and doesn't want to, she doesn't glorify Jack the Ripper. He's barely mentioned. The crimes are barely mentioned. Mm-hmm. So it's a true crime book but with the focus on the victims. Those individuals. Yeah. Uh, yeah, instead of just glorifying a horrible murderer. Right, right. That makes me want to read, you're talking about um, his victims, that makes me want to read something like, I wonder, there's got to be something out there about, that that focuses on, like, the wives specifically of Henry VIII. Right. I'm a big Tudor gal. Mm-hmm. Um, love that time in uh, English history. That would be something cool to read. I, surely there's got to, someone has had to have written something like specifically like analyzing and taking a look at like those women um that henry the eighth either i don't know killed or divorced or died there's Um, a whole broadway musical about the wives of henry the eighth i am absolutely (laughs) certain there's a nonfiction book out there there's There's gotta gotta be one nonfiction. yeah and i don't want fiction with that i want the facts i want the truth i want analysis i don't need some story about Catherine Parr and Boleyn that's fictional where they go and meet someone you know some twist on no you don't I need want the, don't the want news. the other Boleyn girl don't want Kara no. Knightley don't want it not interested don't give me that <laughs> I'm just teasing but so, no I'm not <laughs> hey hey get in the comments and recommend na- recommend us some books yeah. about get Henry the Eighth's wives yeah get in the I comments. need to know that recommend some nonfiction books so yeah I don't know I don't know what's next for me I don't know what's next for me on the nonfiction journey um like I said maybe something ocean disaster thank yeah. you for that that <laughs> recommendation maybe I don't know maybe I'll dive into some sort of I don't know Nordic history yeah. or Korean history or I don't know something like that maybe something to do with linguistics who knows we'll, well see I have a question for you yes so I know that with fiction everybody has like oh I don't read romance oh I don't read horror oh mm-hmm. I don't read YA but with nonfiction, is there a particular like time period or subject matter or something that is your like interested in that because people tend to lump nonfiction in as just like a giant bundle yeah just history just right? yeah just history um hmm 
It really, it depends on the topic. Mm-hmm. I will say, I'm, I've never been particularly interested in, like, in the Civil War. That's just not a time period that has ever um, really appealed to me to learn more about. Spanish-American War, things like that, in terms of flight history. Um, I'm trying to think, anything else? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Manuals, cars, um, how-to books, not for me. Um I'm not really into um, biographies of, like, musicians or celebrities. Yeah. That's not really a thing. I mean, I, I did mention um, A Promised Land by Barack Obama earlier, but that book is, I mean, it's about him and, you know, his campaign and stuff, but it's really more of a look in at the complexity of mm-hmm. being the president. Um um, yeah, I would say, yeah, technology is not something that's particularly interested to me. Yeah, it's like probably that. sports for me. I know that there are yeah, a lot of, like, good sure. nonfiction sports books out there mm-hmm. that a lot of people like to read, but that's sports and World War II are my, which are, like, the two most <laughs> dad topics. Yeah, those are dad topics. <laughs> those are dad topics. And yeah. I will fully admit that part of my nonfiction reading is just dad reading. Well, I mean, we've, we've will, romanticized World War II so much. Right. I mean, that's a topic Again, that's been exhausted. you can't go to the lot. You can't throw a rock without hitting a biography of Churchill. Right, so. exactly. Ah, oh, Churchill. Yep. What a character. Um well, it Anyways, was, it was lovely talking with you, Natalie. Absolutely, we can Katie. Keep going for ten billion hours. Yeah, but I think that now is a good time to wrap it up. That works for me. Look, I had an absolute blast. Like I said, no hate to the fiction. We're just talking nonfiction today, and why it's <coughs> better. No, it's not. But um, <laughs> Charlie's raising his eyebrows at me. Thank you so much for having me, Katie. It was fun. Thanks. We'll do it again. We'll definitely do it again. Thanks for being here, Natalie. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Stacks and Stories, the podcast of the Mississippi Library Commission. We hope you will tune in next time, and we encourage you to visit your local public library often.